0: Hi, I'm Amy and I'm Marcella and we are both transracial and transnational adoptees as well as licensed clinical social workers and trauma therapists. We have dedicated our lives to shedding light on the complexities of adoption and the system responsible for them. We have seen both personally and professionally the silent and overt struggles brought on by this trauma and we are determined to do our part to bring about healing. We know that some of the information
1: we share and topics we unpack may be triggering and uncomfortable at times. But we feel the only way to promote change is to be honest by sharing our truths and elevating the experiences of those in our community. We hope you will join us on this journey of listening and learning with an open heart and an open mind. Welcome to Adoptee's Dish. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. This is Amy. Hi, guys. It's Marcella. Welcome back. We're at episode we're taking our part two of our trauma, a little deep dive here. We're excited to have you guys listening. And Amy, why don't you let them know what we're going to be diving into today yeah. with our part two?
0: Yeah. So for those of you who tuned in last week, we did a little bit of a deep dive into defining trauma, just in general, what is trauma. But today we kind of wanted to talk about trauma in the context of adoption, Which does not get enough focus, highlight, spotlight, and something that we want to continue to amplify this part of the narrative that is often so left out of really big, important conversations. Yeah, for sure.
1: I think that you said it perfectly is like, this is stuff that isn't talked about enough. And one thing that I always point out with the adoptees that I work with, with their families. And I think that, and maybe you've experienced this too, a lot of people just kind of sum it up as like, oh, adoption trauma, adoption trauma, adoption trauma, adoption trauma. Whereas, like, I try and educate on before the adoption even took place, there was trauma, right? Like, whether it was preverbal trauma, whether it was, um, you know, in utero trauma, whether it was there's generational trauma or things like that. It's not necessarily just the adoption where all the trauma started. Like, there's a story even before the adoption took place. And I think that that really is not talked about mm-hmm. enough. A lot of people are like, you know, look at me like I have five heads when I say that.
0: It's so true, though. I love it. I'm I'm totally going to butcher this. But one thing that comes to mind is I recently saw a meme. And it was like, in order for you to be here, you had to have two parents. In order for your which means that you had to have, like... Four grandparents which means that you had to have blah 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 and it went down and it said essentially in order for you to be here it was like 42,000 ancestors or some like crazy huge number mm. I loved that as a trauma therapist who's also an adoptee because it sometimes yeah. for a couple of reasons one as an adopted person sometimes I feel like it can feel truly like we just were created out of thin air like poof we existed right the stork dropped yep. us off right we logically know that we came from a biological family but logical knowing and embodiment of knowing are two very different things right yeah and also loved it because when you talk about generational trauma adoptions don't just happen by accident right there's Mm. a lot regardless if a mother was expecting to get pregnant or not. That's not what I'm talking about. There's a lot of conversation. There's a lot of steps that have to happen in order for an adoption to occur. And one thing Thank that you. I don't think that people really realize is that adoptions don't just impact an adoptee. They impact generations and families and lineage. And then moving forward, that adoptee's legacy. For sure, for sure. I can
1: totally relate to what you were saying of just that that meme and... I'm just, it brought me back to, I remember I had a kiddo, an adoptee, you know, it was a couple years ago. He's probably only like five at the time. So five and these little beings think and feel this stuff. And I remember him telling me like, Miss Marcella, I'm an alien, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm an alien. Like that was just how his little mind you know, wrapped, you know, wrapped his little, you know, system around all of that. The fact that he didn't necessarily know certain things about his lineage, about the generations before him. It's like, yeah, he kind of like knew because it was sprinkled in and talked about within his home here and there, but there was never that true, just like being able to have that knowing and that Mm -hmm. embodying, like you said of it. And I always bring that, you know, that, that that um, situation up, like when I do trainings or things, because I think it's such a pure example of just, just like, there, there's just so much that's impacted and it can cause so much isolation and it can cause so much loneliness when people aren't talking about it and acknowledging the fact that yes, there can be trauma in the adoption itself and things moving forward beyond that adoption, mm-hmm. but so often the stuff that packs the really huge punch is some of the stuff that happens before the adoption, what was going on you know in utero, what was going on you know at that relinquishment place where whatever that looked like, all of those things um, you know pack such a heavy punch
0: totally. I always think about when i 've always thought this, just in from my own story, and just from being in reunion from such a young age and knowing my biological mom and how similar we are. Um she has three biological children and I'm the oldest. Her other two children, my brother and sister always lived with her. But it's funny I've been gone the longest from her and I'm probably the most similar. So when we talk about biology mm-hmm. and the nurture ver- nature versus nurture debate, like holy heck, like there's a lot of like this like our stories as adoptees like I have a lot of um skin in the game when we talk about that whole nature versus nurture. But one thing that I think about is <clears throat> when we're pregnant Um, as women, when we hold our babies inside of us, our children eat every single thing that we put in our bodies, right? Like my poor first child ate a lot of bacon and root beer because that's what I craved when I was pregnant with him. But we also feel what our mom feels. We also, if her system is experiencing a lot of fear, right? There's a very real hormones and chemicals that are pumping through our systems when we are experiencing a sense of threat or when we're experiencing like deep deep sadness right or even joy right like these endorphins like the way our mood is like that alters us physiologically and that Mm -hmm. also impacts the baby so the same way that we eat what our, our biological mothers eat in utero is the same way that we soak into our systems them in their yeah. whole essence,
1: right? In their whole 100%. Essence. Yeah. No, I think you said that beautifully. And I think that that's something that I really touch on with people that I work with and something that was just so powerful to me when I was learning about like what, you know, my experience may have been like in utero is just the fact that like, I don't think any um mother that i've ever spoken to that has placed a child for adoption that has never been described as an easy decision like that mm-hmm. is a painstaking heartbreaking anguishing decision to have to make so naturally their system is going to be an overdrive because of that they're going to be feeling anxious they're going to be feeling stressed they're going to be feeling angry that they're in that situation like all of these Hormones are going to be going all over the place. There's all of this stress, blood pressure rising, all of this stuff. And just like you said, Amy, that is what this little one is absorbing. And that can kind of become their baseline. So you're, you know, having kids right off the jump, having dysregulated nervous systems, because their mother had a dysregulated nervous system, because this decision is so just hard it's just like Mm. the hardest thing ever and I think that that's such an important thing too is when we hear um, adoptive parents professionals you know people out there minimizing the trauma that we go through I think at least I speak for myself I have such an adverse reaction to that and such a huge reaction Mm. because it's totally contradictory to what feels true for my system Mm -hmm. of like oh, you know, she loved you so much and she wanted this. And this was like, you know, the choice that she knew she had to make. That doesn't feel true to my system. It feels like this was something that she had no other choice and it was so hard for her. And there was all of these, you know, messy things in place and messy systems that kind of like twisted her arm into yeah. having to do this. And yeah. so I think that that's so important too of uh, you know, the the truth is that from the get go with you know these dysregulated nervous systems that we inherit, we're receiving trauma like literally from the, the very start of our lives.
0: Yeah. yeah. I do want to say something that I just wanna say this is that infant mental health is a thing. It is a thing. Yes.
1: It say is again. a say thing. It again.
0: It, <laughs> preach it, sister. No, infant <laughs> mental health is a thing. And we really have to attune to that as a society or we will be missing it, missing the mark every single time that a child is born, adopted or not. Infant mental health is a thing. And the reason why that's so important is because. I hear it all the time, especially as a military spouse, I get this all the time because I have two really young kiddos and we have moved a ton. And one thing that I also cringe because it also does not sit well, it just makes me feel so dysregulated when I hear this is, Don't worry about it. They're not going to remember. And I Uh, hate hearing that. Like, I don't use the word hate a lot, but I really hate hearing that because our systems do remember. Our systems might not remember in explicit memory the way we think of memory when we think of memory. We're talking about implicit memory, which is what we say in the trauma world, what fires together, wires together. It's just the way we feel when parts of our system get in touch with another sensation that reminds us of a previous experience if that makes sense it's a very I don't know yeah no I think that no I think
1: you said that perfectly the, the way that I say it to people is it's just the sense that you get it's like this uh, like not even like there's not even a lot of words around it it's mm-hmm. just like this sense of ooh, that was hard Ooh, that was uncomfortable mm-hmm. totally. oh that felt really nice right it's just this sense and it's almost like you know, I think people try to overthink it so much. And when you have a client or, you know, even when I've been on the therapy couch and just like go inside Mm -hmm. and feel that, it's like your system tells you because your system was there. Your system was there, your system lived it. And it's being able to just kind of listen and get that sense of like, "Mm, no, that didn't feel right. Or this is what I feel like that would have looked like or what I was experiencing and you know i think a lot of what people don't understand is when you know our our mothers are pregnant with us right even if their system is dysregulated right that's our safety like that is our safe base their heartbeat that's beating out of their chest is our safety or they're you know rushing around and moving around and having to do all this stuff that, you know, the way that they walk, that's our safety. Like, that is how we grow and develop and it was what we become attuned to. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the biggest, you know, traumas that people don't understand is going from having that for, you know, about nine months, give or take, and then going to either like an empty hospital, going to, you know, an institution, going right to an adoptive family, like that is like craziness, Mm -hmm. like it, boggles my mind that people just think that like that's not gonna have an impact
0: on a little one but it's so true it's biological like we cannot control it I hear so often from adoptive parents that I don't understand why it's so important for my child to want to connect to biological family or I don't get why they're so curious about this like we give them so much Or, Uh you know, it can be really perplexing for a lot of adoptive parents of why this biological connection is so, so, so important. But even, like, we can't take emotion out of it. But even if we were going to, we wiped all emotion out of the equation, it's science. Because, like Uh you said, we were literally programmed. Again, our systems, they only have one goal, and that's to survive. One goal. Like, all the other stuff mm-hmm. is, like, is fillers in, the, in between. But our systems, the only agenda that our bodies, our only our nervous systems have is to survive. And in order to do that, as a baby, we need a caregiver to be able to connect to so that they can meet our needs, 100% of our needs, right? Mm-hmm. And we smell our mother for the first time. The first thing we ever hear, the first thing we ever feel is her heartbeat. The first thing mm-hmm. we ever hear is her voice. And that's all happening in utero. We're programmed. I mean, our
1: language, our Our language. language. Like, I was not hearing English for my first, however many, you know, months in life or in utero. Like,
0: totally. Language. I was hearing Spanish. All, yeah, all of it. And so, when we think about when we're born, if that biological connection is missing or gone, it makes so much sense in that that child, that baby's system is going to panic because it's the, our instinct is to be like, I have to survive here. And what I've literally been programmed to is missing. So what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? Well, it's the equivalent, like I tell my client, it's the equivalent to a death,
1: right? Like we are so reliant when Mm -hmm. we are little on another bigger, wiser, stronger, braver human, that when we don't have that, especially the one that we've like been growing inside for however long, like mm-hmm. it is literally the equivalent of a death. It is so traumatic. It is a total like earth shattering thing. And I don't think that that is ever acknowledged like enough of just like sitting with that. Like mm-hmm. I could just get like that, like knot in my stomach of it's So just, like it is so
0: profound. It's so profound. It's so life-altering and life-jolting, even from that initial moment. When we talk, we talked about this in the last episode. So just for those who haven't, didn't have a chance to listen or um, just to catch you guys all up to speed on that is this work in the therapy room takes so much time. And this is Mm -hmm. why, because we can, we talked a little bit about this before, but we can have real life difficulty knowing what our internal experience is because It can be so heavy and so hard to sit with the reality that we have this loss. So our systems might not be able to go inside to do the work that we need to do because just realizing the fact that we lost our primary caregivers might make us feel like we will not survive that realization. Oh, totally, so this totally. is such hard work. And so I, I, I think you, what you're going to hear me say over and over, because I can already hear myself saying it over and over in just these few episodes, is that have so much grace with yourself and so much self-compassion. If you are somebody working through these wounds, because this is not a simple task. And this is honestly probably the hardest thing that your system will ever have to work through. Yeah. I think it's possible. I think it's attainable. But it takes so much time, attunement, curiosity, grace, compassion. I mean, it's a whole cocktail of different things that have to fall into place in order for your system to be able to ground in just the realization of Mm -hmm. how tremendous this loss is.
1: Right, right. And I think, I mean, speaking from personal experience, right. none of that was ever talked about for me growing up. I don't think my parents knew any of that. None of the groups that we were involved in, you know, none like none of that was addressed. So it wasn't until I went into the field and was like in grad school and, Mm -hmm. you know, went to a trauma informed program and just, you know, picked this up and was learning about it, that it was like a what the fuck moment of like, oh, my gosh, as an adult, I'm now having to comprehend that my little self went through all of this really complex trauma some of which was you know still going on and everything and it was like it was earth shattering right to go my entire life having a certain narrative that when I think about it now never really sat quite right but then hearing it and just wanting to absorb it because it finally made sense it finally was like oh my gosh yes like it clicked. That's what was going on here. But I think that that was so hard.
0: Yeah. And I think a lot of parents, adoptive parents think, oh, of course my, I want my child to be able to connect. Of course they want to know their biological family. They want to know what they look like, or they want to know where they're from. I don't think that there's that realization that, 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 that system, whether that adoptee even I think is aware of it or not, whether it's front and center of their day-to-day awareness or not, that system is still seeking it. It's kind of like that little like, beep, 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 right. beep, beep, beep. Like looking for that like sonar out there, like, oh hey, where where is my little like beam gonna connect to, you know? And then like, one thing that comes to mind for me is what growing up as a little adoptee, I had constant, my entire life, just horrible night terrors, horrible. I used to hate going to sleep because I hated, I was never knew it was gonna happen and it was always traumatic for me. I hated mm-hmm. sleeping. And this happened all my life. And then when I was in high school, I went into reunion. I went to Chile. I lived with my biological family for a month. And when I say I was a violent sleeper girl, I was like a violent sleeper. I would, in my, and I didn't know I was doing this. I would chuck pillows across the room. I would wake up and every single sheet on my bed was on the floor. I would just, I don't know what would happen at night. Like, I wish there was like a camera. It's I was corking. just, it was a nut. It was in a nut case. I hate it. It was just like crazy. And when I came back from my first reunion trip, I remember my mom was in my room, and she was, like, talking to me, and then she said goodnight. And she tucked me in super tight. Like, I asked her. I was like, Mom, like, it was cold, and I was like, tuck me in, like, a little burrito. And all that was sticking out was my head, and I woke up in the exact same spot that when I had fallen asleep Mm. in. And it was the very, very, very first time in my life that I slept completely sound. And it really started getting my wheels turning about something happened inside of me. I didn't know it was neurobiology. I didn't have the theory yet. I was only 16 years old, but there's a tremendous, profound shift occurred inside of my system. And it's not just because we want to know where we're from or why we look the way we do. I really think it's because my system finally had that validation and the affirmation on the other side that, the only other person that could have ever soothed that was my biological mom. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Only other person. Which could is have like ever so that.
1: powerful, right? Mm-hmm. Of just like, mm-hmm. and it's. I know it's really hard for adoptive families to hear, right? But it's like it's. We're just biologically wired that mm-hmm. way to seek the the people that we come from right and sometimes and i get it like they these parents have the best of intentions and they are trying everything but it doesn't like just like you said you don't soothe that void like there is nothing that you can necessarily do to fill that and i know that it's painful and that's triggering because it's like but i'm doing everything and i love this child so much and like why can't i just be enough But it's just, you can't fight it. You Mm -hmm. can't fight the fact that you are not that person that they were seeking from the jump, that Mm -hmm. person that became their very first relationship, their very first safe base. Like you just,
0: you can't compete with that. And that also makes me think of something that trauma is not personal, right? Like, if you're an adoptive parent, and those are the questions that you're asking, it's like, why can't I do this? Like, why can't I soothe this? You're not asking. I'm not. I don't want to. I'm not saying this in like a shameful judgment way, but those aren't the right questions. Yes, yeah. it's, it's not about why can't I do this. Like, I get as a mom too. I can totally appreciate. Like, why can't I soothe my child? Like, I just want my child. You know, I get that. I. 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 I feel that. I don't want my kids to experience any pain. It's about. It's more about like how can I sit with you in this. Discomfort. Yes, I know. No matter what anybody does, it will not change the fact that that initial trauma of separation has occurred. It, it just it, nothing we can do if an adoption has occurred. That that moment of separation, if a child is in care, that that separation has already happened. That separation trauma. It's has trauma. Already, it, yeah, it, it's occurred. And it's non-negotiable. I think that's just something that I have to put out there, too,
1: because I know that lots of people want to negotiate and try to, like, you know, argue that it's not like it's a non-negotiable. Like, Mm -hmm. we have enough science to back it up now. We have enough information, enough data. Whenever there is adoption, it is rooted in trauma. Mm -hmm. Point blank end of discussion that may manifest differently people may have different symptoms because of that trauma because as we said last episode trauma is subjective but that doesn't mean or doesn't negate the fact that trauma has happened
0: 100% and, I just think that's a really and that important. is something that I bring to session all the time and I'm glad that you said yeah. that because I'm so with you on that but trauma is not personal personal and trauma mm-hmm. is not neg- when it comes to these separation and attachment wounds for adoptive parents I think and we said this like in the very first episode or two is that and it sounds really like foofy and it sounds really kind of like yeah right that's not really what I'm here like I think this is one of the best things that we can do for those for kids who've experienced that for adoptees is learning how to sit with that in a really curious and empathetic way and not try to yes. change it, not try to sugarcoat it, not try to fill it in with, well, this story sounds better. Right. Or, oh, not I'm try just gonna to fix it. Don't or not, fix or, it. Or withhold information because you think it's too hard. It happened. And whether you explain it to your adoptee or not, their system already knows it. Their system already senses it because yeah. all of that pain, all of that trauma, lives in their system their nervous system has been fundamentally impacted by this and so there's no need to try to do anything other than sit with them in an unconditional way and commit that you will not abandon them in their time of processing and um, their time of need to really explore what this does for their identity um, building process but one thing that I know we really wanted to talk about in this episode was how some of these symptoms come out with we hear it all the time and these are some really big catchphrase words like fight flight fawn and freeze so let's touch, touch base a little bit on that um how do you how would you explain that and how do you explain those in session
1: Yeah, for sure. So I think that lots of people, you know, are familiar with like fight or flight. I think that was around much earlier than all four of them, right? So in my experience, people are pretty familiar with fight, flight, right? But then adding those other ones, um, these are all trauma responses. So like we were talking about last episode, all of us have different ways that we respond to something traumatic that's happening. It's our system's way of, being a protector and trying to shield us from any additional pain, hurt, fear, all of those kinds of things. And in my experience, we all have the capacity to, you know, move between all of those, you know, different trauma responses. So like fight, flight, free spawn, but, at least for me, right, I speak for myself, I usually program towards certain ones. Like, I'm not really that much of a fleer. Like, I am definitely a fighter. Those of you that know me, like, it's just in me. And there's times when I will freeze. Like, that's usually, like, the last chain of things. And there's definitely a part of me that can be a fawner, right? I don't want to let people down. I will, you know, be the yes person in some cases, all of those kinds of things. And, you know, our system just kind of, like, moves between them based on the situation. But the end goal is to make sure that we don't get hurt. Again, it's like a survival, a survival instinct. Some people call them like your your survival skills, your defense mechanisms, whatever. Um, But I think what's so important is just like we were talking about last time, those usually are what people see as symptoms, the stuff that brings them into therapy. I get angry a lot. I get anxious. I have panic attacks. I feel like I'm just walking around in a fog. I over explain things to people. Um, I just feel so guilty all the time, right? Like this is like the checklist as a trauma therapist. When I hear people saying those in here, I'm like, okay, these are their trauma responses. Now I have to figure out what caused those to come into effect because they didn't just like you know pop out of
0: nowhere yeah no 100% yeah I was just listening to you and I was kind of reflecting on what my biggest ones are I'm definitely a fighter like you especially when I was younger when I was still
1: right I like thankfully evolved like thank you to my (laughs) therapist shout out to you like I am not like an angry Uh, crazy person anymore
0: shout out to my (laughs) therapist too like what a love. But I, yeah, definitely a fighter um, and yeah. definitely a fawner for sure. I can own that as well. Yes.
1: Flight. Yeah, which I didn't even realize. I did not realize until that became more of a thing. Holy shit. Like, I have such a fauner part in me that, like, mm. does not want to let people down and, like, will do things that I don't really want to do or, like, you know, prioritize other people's stuff over my stuff. Like, Totally. And what I've noticed, maybe you've noticed it too, that's a huge one with the adoptee population. Like, oh, totally. Huge. But huge.
0: I, think, I think, and I think when we unpack it, this is why. It's because it comes down essentially to that people-pleasing need, because abandoning our own sense of self feels safer than letting that person down, right? Yes. Because if we let that person down, we have this not time-oriented Fear that that person will reject us, that person will leave us. It's that implicit memory kind of getting activated, stating and getting triggered that it's going back to that separation, separation trauma. trauma. So when people are like, oh, my kid, I can just hear them people pleasing on my kids. Like It's like the, so many adoptees right, or so many adoptive parents will say to me, yeah, but my my child never thinks about their adoption or my child refuses to talk about it or my it's not on our radar like they it's but it's in their behaviors, it's mm. in their day-to-day way that they're connecting or not connecting with their worlds, right? So really it's not about whether it's in the front and center of your awareness. Like you said, it's a non-negotiable. And so not only is it non-negotiable in how we define trauma, it's a non-negotiable because we have the proof is in the pudding and just our day to day interactions with our communities, with our worlds, with our relationships, with ourselves, right? Yeah. This is all so deeply rooted in who we are. Um but yeah, that's why I think fawning yeah. is such a big thing. Well I think you big, touched big on something super huge too is
1: like I see this this fawn, right? And when we talk about fawn like you know, just in in what I've read and what I've now learned is like that is such a response we use when we don't really have a sense of self. It's like, oh, OK, I'm just going to like go with whatever you want or your feelings matter more than mine. It's like we don't even know ourselves. And so fawning becomes so easy. It's like, oh, OK, of course, I'll prioritize you over myself because I don't even know myself. Mm-hmm. And knowing ourselves and having that sense of mm-hmm. self comes from, like you were saying, those early connections knowing where we come from having that sense of safety and when yeah. that's ruptured it's like of course we don't know yeah. who the heck we are
0: well and i think it's like such a confusing thing too just to build off of that that as adopt as humans what we know we have all the science in the world to back this up is that the one thing that we need one thing more and i say this all the time in session the more that what we need more than we need food and water and there's literal science that back this up is connection and so because we need connection mm-hmm. on such a powerfully deep level, the ironic thing about adoption because of our implicit memory and our, our separation wounds is that the very thing that we need, which is connection, is also our biggest trigger because it's the one thing that put our whole systems into panic, yes. right? Our whole system. Yep. So trauma really impacts our worldview and so in how we dip in and out of connection with other people, how we dip in and out of relationships. Even with ourselves, yeah. um, but our connection is the one thing we need, and connection is also our biggest trigger. So it's definitely a wonky sure. thing to to navigate in our systems and our minds. Super confusing, and
1: I know we've been talking a lot about the stuff that happens so so early in terms of that preverbal generational, you know, in utero stuff. Something that I bring up too, and I don't know, Amy, if you have this experience or you know you see this with clients, but. I always encourage professionals that are working with this population and parents, like get a real image of like that timeline for your kid, like for myself, like when I'm talking about this. So I was Mm -hmm. born in August, right? So I was actually like, um, uh, like, I was in utero nine months, was born, I was born, day of I was born, separated from my mother, went to the hospital, next day went to the institution that I was in for about six weeks, had all different kinds of caregivers, was surrounded by all different kinds of babies, then met my adoptive parents, left that institution and was out in like the real world with all the sights and sounds and smells and sensory overload. Feeling and hearing these people that were not familiar, were speaking a foreign language, were just totally foreign to me, having to shuffle through all of these doctor's appointments and, you know, going to the courts and all of these things. Then to get onto an airplane to come all the way to Buffalo, where the climate is different, where I'm getting hugged and kissed by all these people that I don't know, and all of these things. Like, I think I once counted it and I went through like 16 major transitions by the time that I was like, two months old, Mm -hmm. two to three months old. And that right there is trauma too. And I think that that's even something that people don't wrap their heads around of like all of that transition. Like when people typically have a baby and bring them enclosed for a while, like some of them, like they are on maternity leave. They're just kind of like focusing on baby. There's not like 85 zillion transitions that are going on. And I think that's not really acknowledged either. 100%
0: no it's so true it's so 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 true it's so true we the yeah yeah I was just trying to play my own little timeline in my brain too when I was listening to you speak it's so so true and I think with transracial or transnational adoption too going back I, I don't think it can be underestimated all how nuanced it gets in that because when we talk about implicit memory, mm. when we talk about, you know, like the sensation that we're getting in our systems, how we're, you know, how all that information is firing together in our brains, how we're making meaning of our worlds. You know, a lot of us, we're hearing a language and then all of a sudden, you know, our adoptive parents come or we get on a plane with, uh, you know, and then we arrive in this country. People are literally look different. Their skin is lighter. Their hair looks different different textures yes. eyes are different colors or they speaking a different, different language
1: they sound different the yes.
0: food that we're eating or the food that we're smelling smells different like every single aspect yes. is on like there's nothing that is untouched it's unfamiliar that is not exactly that's not familiar unfamiliar and so I think like it's just we have to be really careful and really curious about wow every single little element that my my child has experienced here is shifting their entire nervous system right now right and it's mm-hmm. it's wow like when you think about that like i even like this is so much a part of my daily conversation this is so much a part of my yeah. daily thought process it's so
1: funny you and i both have our hands on our hearts <laughs> like right here like this, this is where we feel this is where we feel it in our body
0: guys and it's just, yeah, like when I really just pause for a second and really reflect on the profoundness of that, it's like my system is actually like feeling heavy. Like it, it is something yeah, that, same. that that what we went through. I had a very similar experience. I was um, due to the nature of how I was conceived and um, the trauma of you know, placing her child for adoption. My mom had a C-section and she was put under. So the mm. there's a lot of discrimination at the hospital at the time, and the doctors and nurses wouldn't even tell her if she had a boy or a girl. They told her she was going to mm. have a time with me, and then when I was born, I was just taken and put in a nursery. Yeah. Not one person from my biological family ever even touched me or held me Same. or kissed me. Yep. Um, I was just placed in a nursery and just like you, I was placed in foster care in Chile and then you just waiting until my family. So when we think about that nowadays, the best practice is skin to skin touch, right? Nowadays, when you have a kid, you know, some, some doctors won't even cut the umbilical cord right away. When we think about the differences in best practice, best practice versus Mm -hmm. what our experience was. The spectrum is opposite it's polar opposites. As an adopted person, you know, I when I gave birth to my children, I was like the the profoundness in that moment to be able to to hold my children, to have them on my chest to feel their skin touching mine. I mean, there is not even a word in our language, in any language that can embody the healing mm-hmm. of that because my system never had that and just knowing i remember thinking to myself just knowing that my children are having this their lives are already starting out with more security in yeah, the right. in that in that instant in the, just like that first second you know whatever happens after i'm <laughs> the craziness and chaos of our life but in that <laughs> second in that second
1: yeah.
0: they had safety that I don't yeah, know if your my, baby's new
1: safety new yeah,
0: safety. and that's something that I'm so proud of that I think so many people take for granted but I was able to give that to my child and I feel so internally full of gratitude that that's something that I've been able to give them
1: yeah for sure thank you for sharing that first of all because I think that that just brings it so full circle and speaks to just like you said the polar oppositeness of like your baby's experience versus our experience. And I hope for people hearing that, cause maybe people don't really understand all the nuances and what we go through as like itty bitty babies. But like, I think that for most people hearing that it's like, there is that heaviness and that like, oh my gosh, like, that's not good for a baby, right? Like I think most people that know babies need stability, babies need care, babies need touch, babies need a whole bunch of connection and attention when they're itty bitty, like that, this just doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make sense.
0: And then we bring them into this culture that's so individualistic, that's like, let your baby cry it out, get them on a routine. We, Uh. We do every single thing that goes against our instincts as human beings that are wired for connection. We're wired for mm-hmm. connection. Our ancestors, right? Like, our bajillion ancestors ago were tr- more tribal and living in more, like, community, and it was just such a normal thing to just, you know, carry your babies. And But we're not that way anymore, right? And we're, you know... it I, You know, just our systems, our maternal instinct is to you know, hug our baby, hold our baby. And we hear, you know, doing this very primal thing, you're gonna spoil your child, or you're gonna, you know, they're gonna Mm. be so whiny, or they're gonna be so manipulative. Well, actually what we're doing is exactly what their nervous system needs to build that sense of stability and safety if we just let them cry and not we're not attuning. And what we know is attunement is trauma. That Mm -hmm. is, and this is going to be hard for a lot of people to hear, but in my professional opinion, that is neglect because when a child is expressing their need and a, a caregiver does not attune to that need in a timely manner, in a sensitive manner with curiosity about what's causing that distress that nervous system is starting to wire from a place of protection rather than connection. Now, we hear all the time, "Well, I would cry it out and I turned out fine." But Hyrule. as a baby in that moment, what was like what was your body experiencing? Your body mm-hmm. was experiencing tremendous distress in that moment, and nobody came for you. Nobody came for right. you. Right, what does that teach you? What does that teach you? The younger we are, the more rejection feels life-threatening because we need our caregivers to keep us alive again the only thing we care about is survival and so the younger we are the more that rejection feels life-threatening and if our caregivers are not attuning to our distress then it makes sense as adults why when we struggle with relationships our whole systems can go into extreme panic and it feels life-threatening because again we're not time-oriented to the present it's that stuff that happened when we were babies.
1: Yes, and it's valid. And I think you come up to such a good point of like, it is life threatening. When Mm -hmm. I get into, you know, as a teenager, when I was bumping head to head with my parents and they sent me to my room, I was interpreting that as a life threat, right? To their Mm -hmm. untrained eye, it's like, oh, she's just, you know, having a tantrum and I'm gonna go send her to her room because that's just, you know, what my parents did. I would freak out, like I would freak out because my system had truly experienced that threat of not having regulation, of not having somebody there to be my safe base. And that was in that moment, I was like, looking back on it now, I feel like it probably was like a complex PTSD moment of like, I've experienced that horribleness before. This feels similar in my body, in my emotional reaction with what I'm thinking. And that's how I that's how I responded. I responded exactly the way that I would if it was literally a life threat charging at me.
0: Totally, 100%. Oy. Yes. And in that, in those moments, right. I'm sure now clinically what you would tell a parent in a situation like that is when your child is that dysregulated, it is the number one signal to you that they need connection. They need that co-regulation. They need that stability until their system can feel more connected and grounded again to keep moving forward. Right. Yeah. So it's not So when when a child is left to feel all that in isolation and alone, and a parent isn't trained or have a therapeutic enough space to be able to attune to that, the divide between the two is just going to continue to grow. And then that's when we start seeing behaviors that feel really uncomfortable, behaviors that feel really confusing, behaviors that feel really out there and just random intense it's yeah tense they can feel scary all these things and then parents who are like um what is wrong with my child what mm-hmm. and then that whole mentality starts building off of each other too and then that separateness that like divide between that relationship is so ruptured yeah there's such a lack of trust because the very fundamental things that seemingly are so simple connection and safety and attachment are really some of the hardest things because you hear a kiddo who's like, I need to attach, I need to attach. Ah, but attachment or connection is so scary. And then this parent is like, how you're dealing with that is really confusing me and it's making me feel really overwhelmed and I don't have the grounding skills to deal with it. And so it's just a whole bunch of mess. Um, Yes. So, and, but we can go on. But on. I
1: think that's such an important thing and we're going to get into it in other episodes about that whole concept of attunement and misattunement, but I think that that in my clinical opinion is another area of trauma that is so present within the adoptee community. It's like yes, all that stuff happened, you know, with our biological families and that disconnect and that relinquishment and that separation and all of those things, but then this doesn't Stop once we get into you know this new family unit, right? Oftentimes it gets perpetuated because you have parents that haven't dealt with their own stuff, that have their own trauma reactions, their own trauma responses that then are getting put onto this kid. You have a gross neglect in terms of training, in terms of agencies actually legitimately preparing parents to take on this role of raising somebody else's child and it's just so messy and that's where we see this complex trauma happen because it's not just this isolated stuff it's then these parents getting triggered over and over and over again and having like so little bandwidth to just be with the kid and except this is what's going on for my making it about them and I tell parents like if you are consistently making this personal it's not about your kid then it's about you it's about you and your unprocessed stuff that you have to like get on point
0: yeah it is I mean and I love that you can can say that I don't think a lot of clinicians can be that frank and that just bold with it but at the end of the day I that's why I, I you know adoptee clinicians are just a special breed because we feel this so deeply rooted in our bodies and we know there were so many points where our systems didn't feel like they were going to make it that we are so committed in such a deep 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 way to make sure that these little adoptees have access to safety right it's not it's a non-negotiable this Mm -hmm. isn't this is this is a life or death type of situation. So I think yeah, that literally. literally, yeah. Um, so I, I mean, every single thing that we talked about tonight, I think could be truly its own separate podcast, just diving deeply into every single thing. Um, but I think for now that was kind of heavy, <laughs> um, a heavy episode, Mm-hmm. A lot of stuff there to to integrate and to 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 noodle on and to, to process. I would love to hear what our listeners are thinking about this. So, adoptees dish at gmail adoptees dish podcast. Why am I adoptees dish podcast at gmail dot No, you're good. Just adoptees dish. No, flip flop it. No, adoptees dish
1: at gmail dot com, and then you got the insta.
0: You got it. okay, and then. I, See, that's why we work so good together, girl. And then our Instagram is at (laughs) (laughs) Podcast. So please feel free to reach out and share your thoughts, your questions, your concerns. Um, Please um, be a part of our conversation because you are a part of our community and that is something that's super important to us. So thank you so much for listening. And stay tuned for next week when our next episode comes out. Thank you for listening, guys. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much for listening to Adoptee's Dish. We want to give a special shout out to Patreon, Spotify, iTunes, and Anchor. If you like what you heard and want to support our work or allow us to have amazing guests on their show, please consider making a donation. We can be reached on Instagram at Adoptee's Dish Podcast, at Grow Blossom, and Marcella Maslow, And you can send us emails at adopteesdish at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening and join us next week for our next episode. Please share this podcast, talk to others about things you learned, together we have the potential to heal broken systems.